meet you. We are at the tail end now. This is the last in our series on John 20 and 21, what we've been calling the resurrection effect. Seeing Jesus after he has risen interact with a few different people and really show us what it means to follow the risen Jesus. So we are really close to the end of John chapter 21 and the end of John's gospel here. And we're seeing Jesus interact specifically with Peter. Remember last week we found Jesus gather his disciples out of their boat after he had given them this amazing catch of fish and he brings them to the shore and he feeds them breakfast and is wonderfully hospitable to them. And now really in that same scene he kind of takes Peter aside and deals with him very personally. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to John 21 and I'm going to start reading in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you from a lot of different ways this morning. Some of us really eager to hear what your word has to say to us. Some of us not really sure what to expect or what to think. Some of us came dragged here by a family member. Some of us came dragging another. Lord, you know how we have come. You know the state of our hearts right now. And we ask that you would open them, that we might hear your word, that we might be changed by it, that you might actually shape us and renew us by your word this morning. We do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that you have seen the movie Hoosiers. If you've not seen Hoosiers, then your afternoon should be scheduled for you, okay? Because um, even less you see it, you and I probably are not going to be friends. It is a fabulous movie about this Cinderella high school basketball team in Indiana in the late 50s. And uh, just as a spoiler alert, of course, they end up winning the state championship. It's a fabulous feel-good movie. But there's this great character in the movie, a guy named Shooter. And Shooter is not only the father of one of the players on the team, but he is kind of the town drunk. He has a pretty bad reputation around town, and he's really kind of cast out because he's an alcoholic. And everybody just knows, oh, Shooter, he's going to kind of mess something up. But the new basketball coach in town, who's played by Gene Hackman, takes a liking to Shooter and really kind of takes him under his wing. In fact, he asks him to come and be one of his assistant basketball coaches. 
And there's this one scene where they kind of broker a deal and they're talking together and, um, and the coach, Gene Hackman, says, all right, listen, you can come and you can, you can be a coach on my team, but you gotta sober up. You have to stay sober and then you can come and, uh, and be one of the coaches on the bench here. And then Shooter kind of brokers another deal. He says, okay, great, I'll do that, but you have to tell me this. You have to promise me that you're not gonna get kicked out of a game. Because the coach is kind of notorious for that. He's kind of a hothead. So he says, you have to promise me you're not gonna get kicked out of a game because I don't want to end up coaching this team. Well, as you'll probably guess, the coach did not fill his end of the bargain. And there's this great scene where they're in the middle of a really pivotal game and a pivotal time in the game. And the coach goes up to the ref and he, and he says, hey, hey, throw me out of the game. And the ref is like, what? Do what? He says, yeah, just throw me out. So the ref says, all right, fine, whatever. You're out of here. And, of course, Shooter then takes the place of the head coach and he's frozen stiff. He has no idea. He, he's just, there's, there's no idea what to do. He's embarrassed his son who's on the team before. He's really lived kind of with this shame of being the town drunk, being this alcoholic, and he doesn't know what to do. And so his players are all huddled together. If There's like 20 seconds left in the game, and Shooter is frozen. And finally his son kind of breaks the silence, and he very tenderly asks his dad kind of how they should proceed. And in his son moving toward him like this, it really kind of just changes Shooter's mindset and it kind of wakes him up and he starts to realize, oh yeah, I do have this love and this passion for the game of basketball. And so he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he draws up this great play. He said, boys, we're going to run the picket fence at him. And, you know, Merle, you're going to be over here. And Jimmy, you're isolated left. And Merle's the swing man and he's going to come around. He should be open and don't get caught watching the paint dry. And it's this beautiful, you know, wonderful scene. Of course, you know, he hits the game winning shot and everybody He's excited and everything's wonderful. It's a great feel-good scene in the movie. But it's really a scene that, you know, the, the undercurrent is about the coach and what he's done with Shooter. Because it's the coach that actually came and personally approached this man who had been carrying this deep shame in his life. He gave him a responsibility and a job to do and in many ways reshaped his future. His his character in the movie really changes from then on out. John 21 that we just read is a story like that. It's a story where Jesus comes to Peter, who is a man who is carrying deep shame. Peter's last interaction, really, that we've read about, and we heard it in our worship service earlier, was denying Jesus. Was saying three times, I don't even know that man. He's carrying this deep shame of being the one who would deny Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and he dives into that. He doesn't cover it over. He dives into that shame and he actually takes it. And he gives Peter a job, a responsibility, something to do in his kingdom, some leadership in his kingdom. And then he also really reshapes and retells Peter's future. It's a good passage for those of us who also deal with those same things. Because this is about a God who comes and actually acutely comes and pinpoints the shame that we carry in our hearts. Who deals with it for good. Who gives us a responsibility to go and to feed and to care for his sheep. And who really sends us out with a different future. We're going to look actually at those three things, the shame, the, the shepherding, and the future, the, the interaction between Jesus and Peter. Okay, So let's, let's dig into those, and then we'll look a little bit afterwards at some application and what we're supposed to do with it. So as we open and we look at Jesus' interaction with Peter, 
You have Jesus come to Peter. Again, remember, all the disciples are gathered together. They're sitting around a fire. Jesus has fed them breakfast. And the image really is that Peter kind of takes Jesus, I mean, Jesus takes Peter kind of aside, and he starts to talk to him. And he asks him three times this question. Peter, do you love me more than these, more than these other men love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times over and over. And in doing so, Jesus is actually taking Peter back to the most shameful time in his life. He's kind of resetting the stage to take Peter back to that time when Peter betrayed Jesus. Now let's do, let's go a little bit backwards and, and read some, uh, some of this material in John to figure out where we are. So just bear with me for just a second. You don't have to turn here, but just listen to John chapter 13. This is what uh, John tells us about Peter and his denial. Simon Peter had said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And listen to Peter's response. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Do you hear kind of the echoes of what Peter is saying there? Lord, I love you more than anybody else loves you. I love you more than any of these other men. I love you more than any of these other disciples. I love you so much I would go and I'd lay my life down for you. I will truly die for you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Will you really lay your life down for me? You hear the echoes there? And then if you'll fast forward to John 18, where we actually hear uh, the account of Peter denying Jesus, listen to how John sets it up for us. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to be the high priest, was known to the high priest, excuse me, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself himself. Think back on what we talked about last week. We saw Jesus call in his disciples from their boat, give them this amazing catch of fish. He calls them over to the shore and he is cooking some fish on a charcoal fire. You hear the echoes again. So we've got Peter, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, around a charcoal fire. And then three times Peter has denied Jesus, right? And how many times does Peter ask, uh, how many times, excuse me, does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Three times. Jesus is really kind of resetting the scene here. He's taking Peter back to the most shameful time in his life, the time where he denied Jesus. And he's taking him there not to rub it in, Not to heap more shame upon him, but actually to take it from him. I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life like this. A time that just is a a formative, negatively formative experience for you. A time that feels deeply shameful. Usually you have ringing in your head the things that you said or did. And they just kind of stick there like they're imprinted or tattooed into your brain, don't they? What is the last thing that Peter has heard himself say? 
I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Isn't it beautiful and kind and generous of Jesus to bring Peter back there and to replace those memories? So that Peter actually hears himself say three times, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you. Jesus allows Peter to say what is true of him. And in doing so, erases that shame that Peter was living in. That is what our Lord does. He comes to us even in our deepest, darkest times. And he doesn't cover over it. He doesn't just gloss over it. He doesn't just let us kind of float away. He actually comes penetratingly in sometimes very painful ways to deal with our shame. That is what Jesus does. Let me just define really quickly what I'm talking about. Because when I say the word shame, I don't know if we all know really what I'm saying. There is a difference between when I use the word guilt and I use the word shame. Guilt really is that true and right feeling that we, when we stand before the Lord, we stand actually as those who are guilty before Him. Because we cannot actually give what He requires. So when we look at ourselves as who we are and we see the sin in our actions, in our thoughts, in our motivations, there should be guilt. But shame is different. Because what shame actually says is, though I see that guilt truly, my shame tells me that Jesus can't cover it. That what Jesus has done is just not enough. And so we continually work in this way to try and cover our own shame. To try and do more that we think is going to compensate for what Jesus has done that's going to make us feel better about ourselves. Or we just simply try to run away and forget all about it. But what Jesus does with Peter is the same thing that he does with us. He comes to us acutely and he says, let me take it. Let me cover it. Let me take it upon myself. If you are still still dealing with, maybe it's one time in your life, maybe it's a repetitive action in your life that is bringing you these feelings of shame, that is bringing you this feeling that, you know what Jesus has done for me and dying for me just isn't enough. Let me invite you to see what Jesus does with Peter here in this passage. That he comes and he actually changes his identity. You wonder why also he says, Peter, son of John, three times he calls him son of John. It's kind of like he's saying, you remember that time when you forgot who you were? Let me remind you. You're not only Peter, son of John, you're Peter, son of your heavenly father. Friends, Jesus says the same thing to us. He reminds us of our identity. He reminds us of his renewing power. He reminds us of what the gospel does. And let me say this, it's even good to let yourself say those same things that that Peter said. To be able to hear yourself say, Lord, I love you. Even though I also love money, sometimes more. Even though I also love power and acceptance and pleasure, even though I so often struggle with those things, Lord, I do love you. Increase my love. That's the first thing. Let's look at kind of the second thing that Jesus deals with with Peter here. Is he not only comes and he deals with his shame, he renews his identity, but in doing so, he gives him actually a job to do. He gives him something to do. Every time that Peter, that John, excuse me, asks And I'm getting all confused. Every time that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. How is that followed? It's always Jesus saying, okay, if you say you love me, here is then what I'm sending you to do. To show your love for me by caring for my sheep. 
That if you love Jesus, you also will love the church. If you love me, you also will love my people. And so three times repeated, Jesus says, feed my lambs, care for my sheep, tend my sheep. We read in John 10 that Jesus proclaims himself to be the good shepherd. The one and true shepherd of the flock. He says that the good shepherd knows his sheep by name. That the good shepherd actually feeds and cares for his sheep. And that the good shepherd actually lays his life down for his sheep. Having given Peter a new identity. Having taken away his shame. He now calls Peter to follow in his footsteps. To do the work of shepherding God's people. Now I do think there are a couple things that we need to really recognize. Some really important things going on here. The first that I think is very important is this. Jesus comes to Peter and he says, I want you to feed, tend, care for my sheep. He doesn't say these are your sheep, Peter. Jesus says, feed my sheep. For those of us who are called to the same thing, we are tending and caring for and feeding Jesus' flock. The people beside you. I had a seminary professor who would say this, he'd say phrases like this to us all the time. You know, when you were out there and you were preaching God's word to Jesus' blood-bought lambs, take care. And he would just come with this huge weight, like, oh, wow, that's right. These are the blood-bought lambs of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's helpful to remember that. The people sitting beside you are the blood-bought lambs of Jesus Christ. That is who you were called to care for. So that's the first thing, is that they're not your sheep. They're not my sheep, they're Jesus' sheep. The second thing I think that's really important here is that when Jesus calls Peter to come and tend his sheep, to care for them, he is not calling him to a particular office or title. He does not say, Peter, do you love me? Great, I know that you love me. Now go be the leader of the church. Peter, now go be a pastor. Peter, now I give you this title of elder or of shepherd. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give him a title. He gives him a job. He gives him a responsibility. You don't have to be seminary trained. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have an office. You don't have to be the strongest to be able to care for the sheep. You simply have to love people. That is the requirement of caring for Jesus' flock. Loving people. Now, Jesus does give his church, those who are called, those who are trained, those who are equipped for leadership, but he also calls all of us to the role of shepherding, to the job and the responsibility of caring for one another. And that does not mean we have to have a seminary degree. It does not mean we have to be the strongest and the most capable. You actually can be the weakest and still love the people around you the best. I was taking a walk this week with uh, with my dog, Lewis, and we were walking, you know, just around in a neighborhood street, and I don't know if you guys have seen already some of these little fawns that are being born. So we came upon this, this mother deer and this fawn that was, I mean, couldn't have been more than a day old. It was tiny. It was so cute. It was wonderful. And as we approached, I mean, you know deer, they're flight animals, right? So you know the process. You walk up and, you know, the deer around here, they're not really scared of much. But when you get within about 10 yards or so, that deer is usually going to take off and they're going to run away. 
Well, I'm walking with my dog, right, who the deer are afraid of, and we're walking up on this mother with this baby fawn, and we're getting really close. It's in the front yard of somebody's house, and I'm walking down the street. And it was amazing what the mother did, what the mother deer did. So she, she just kind of nudged the fawn with her nose, and the fawn laid down in the grass. And then the mother deer positioned herself between us and the baby. And the closer I got, the closer that mother would get to me. And she started stamping her feet. Like, you better get off now. And I would get closer and she would walk one step closer to me. And there was no way that anybody was getting between her and her baby. She was protecting the weak. It was beautiful. I called a friend of mine uh, this week and, and told him that story. And he said, man, I can even do you one better. He said, I talked to my uncle this week who is a farmer in Mississippi. And he said, I had a cow who was giving birth and was having a really difficult labor. He said, I went to check out on the check on this mama cow. And all of the mama cows from the whole pasture had gathered around this one and had formed a circle facing outward like, you ain't coming in here. You know, they were protected. They'd all gathered around this weak woman, this uh, this weak cow who was who was giving birth, and they were protecting her. They wouldn't let anybody come in. That is community shepherding, right there. You don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be the most knowledgeable. You don't have to be the one with the long educational history. You just have to love people. That is what we are called to: to actually care for, tend, feed, love one another. Let's move on to that third thing that Jesus talks to Peter about, and it's his future. If you look here at the way that Jesus ends his discussion with Peter, this is what he says in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Um, Most scholars will tell you what Jesus is talking about here is Peter's death. He is telling Peter what kind of death he is going to die. In fact, John tells us that as well. And most, again, scholars will tell you that Jesus is alluding to crucifixion. This is not super rosy. Jesus pulling Peter aside and saying, hey, guess what? What the future holds for you is following me even in death. That you, like your master, will not only be martyred, but probably martyred in a really, really terrible way. And most of church history, historians, will tell you that Peter was actually crucified. Now that's got to be sobering for Peter. For Jesus to pull him aside and say, feed my sheep and you know where that's going to take you. If you care for my people, do you know what that's going to take? It's going to take you actually laying your life down for me. But you know, there's probably some little internal smile for Peter as well. Because again, if if you have had this kind of experience in your life, maybe you have these kind of experiences regularly where you think, oh no, I'm going to slip right back into that same kind of sin pattern. Maybe I'm actually going to do that same thing that led down that road before. And that's going to happen and I'm so frightened of it. You know, Jesus is really reassuring Peter here. Jesus is telling Peter, you're not going to deny me. There's hope. You are actually going to follow me. And you're going to follow me your whole life, even when it takes your whole life. That actually you are going to die a martyr's death faithfully because you love me. That had to have been at least a little bit encouraging to Peter. Friends, God's people are are called to follow him in sacrifice. 
This is the not-so-rosy application for us. Is that the Bible is pretty clear that what it means to follow Jesus is actually to follow Him in sacrificing our lives. If you know Jesus and He begins to work in you, He will create in you a more loving person. He will create you to be more kind. He will make you actually someone who is more tender. He will make you someone who says no to things you used to say yes to. And guess what? The world around you is not going to like that. When the Lord comes and he starts to work on us and he change us, we become less like the world around us. And oftentimes people don't like that. And there really is persecution and there really is sacrifice. You will be called then to sacrifice for the Lord. That just seems to be the equation. In fact, Peter, this same guy, when he writes in his epistle just a little while later, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. For what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and you suffer for it, then you endure, then this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. When Jesus says, follow me, he is talking also about following him in sacrifice. Alright, so how do we apply this? Let's just really quickly, just in the last couple of minutes, um, do a little bit of application. And there's lots of ways, I think, that we can apply this. But I want to hone in specifically on what this means for leadership in the church. What does this mean to those who are leaders in some way in the church? And just for those of you who don't know, we're a brand new church. We're not even a year old. And the way that our church works is that eventually we will actually, um, we will actually elect elders from among us that will govern our church. But that may not happen for another few years. So what does it look like then, especially in the meantime, to be a leader in God's church and to then even see who is leading among you? Well, here's just four things, I think four things that we can take from this passage about leadership and what it means um, in this church and really in life in general. So those four things are this. First of all, is that, is that leaders are not perfect. Now, you can see that pretty clearly from Peter. If you've known me for more than like ten minutes, you know, that should be, you know, a surprise to you as well. Is that the leaders in God's church are not perfect people. They fail all the time. They are not the ones who are the most perfect. They're not the ones with the most perfect spiritual records. They're not the ones who with the most perfect moral records. That's not who it seems like God has called to leadership. Again, the only omnicompetent leader in the history of the world, Jesus, chose to be among his kind of executive leadership team, a guy that had just a few chapters before denied that he even knew him. Alright? That's who, that's who Jesus calls, is a guy like Peter. So, if you are a leader, you do not have to be perfect. And if you aspire to leadership, you do not have to be perfect. And if you are looking at those around you and you are expecting them to be perfect, you will be sorely disappointed. So really, if you're looking at the leaders among you, be asking this question instead. Who is humble? Who is honest? Who is transparent about who they are? Who knows their failings and has taken them to Jesus? That's the kind of leader that we want. Second thing is that even though leaders in God's church are not perfect people, they do love Jesus. It is good for us to hear Peter say this over and over and over three times. I love you, Lord. I love you. I love you. 
The leaders in God's church are not the ones who are called to sit on the most boards in the community. The leaders in God's church are not the ones who have proven themselves to be the best businessmen. The leaders in God's church are not the ones who just seem like they have the most popular names. That's not what God calls his leaders to be. When you look out and you say, who are the people who are leading in our church? Be asking the question instead, who are the ones who are overflowing with the love of Christ? Who are the ones that it just kind of seems like Jesus' love for them and their love for Jesus just kind of pours out and is overflowing in them? Who are the ones that want to get to know the Lord better? That's the right question to ask. Here's the third thing you're looking at leaders. Is that leaders not only are not perfect and leaders um, love Jesus, but also that leaders shepherd God's people. That is what they're called to do is move toward people. To move toward the people around them. To move toward people so that they might care for them, tend them, feed them, shepherd them. Again, it is not the office that God, that Jesus gives Peter here. It is the role and the responsibility, the job of moving toward people. That can sometimes be really hard in a new church, especially if you're used to a larger, older church, which larger, older churches oftentimes have a lot more programs. They have kind of these structures that people can fit into much more easily. We don't have those, but we do have a lot of people who need to be loved. So when you're looking around thinking, who are the, who are the leaders among us? Be asking the question, who are the ones who are serving? Who are the ones who are laying down their lives, their time, their energy, their money to be able to serve their neighbors, the people around them? Who are the ones who are just kind of moving toward hurting people, who are moving toward outsiders, who are moving toward them even when it seems scary to do so? Here's the last thing that we learn, I think, about leaders as well, is that leaders sacrifice. Leaders do lay down their lives. They lay down their lives in pretty immeasurable ways to love and to serve the people around them, to follow Jesus in his example of sacrifice. So if you're asking the question, who are the leaders among us? Ask the question, who is it that's laying down their life? When I look out there, who do I see sacrificing for others? Friends, let me just say this to close. I am so encouraged to be among you because I see all of these things happening. I see people moving toward others. I see this radar that oftentimes happens where someone who's hurting will come into our midst and there's just this kind of like innate radar of like hurting person and then heat-seeking missiles that surround that person. That is beautiful to watch. I see people who are getting up at crazy early hours on Sunday mornings to come and set up chairs and musical equipment and stuff that just really has no glory at all and they're doing it because they love the Lord and they love His people. I see people who are pouring themselves out, serving one another, caring for our children, setting up a place to be hospitable so that others might come in and feel welcomed, who really are building into this culture of welcome and belonging that we want to see happen here. It's happening. And my prayer is that it will continue. That God will continue to bring us people who are not asking the question, what does it look like for me to gain some sort of acceptance in the world? What does it look like for me to get some sort of leg up on others by being on top of them? But who are asking the question, what does it look like for me to follow the Lord? For me to follow the one who removes my shame. For me to follow the one who calls me to care for his people. For me to follow the one who calls me to sacrifice for them. That's my prayer this morning for us. Let's pray that right now. Father, thank you for this um, this.
This beautiful example of the way that you move toward us. This wonderful example of the way that you come and you pinpoint our shame. And you dive into it. Not to rub it in, but to lift it. To remove it from us. To remind us of our identity in you. Lord, for this beautiful example of what it looks like for us to move toward others. To shepherd them, to care for them, to feed them. And Lord, even for what it looks like for us to move toward a sacrificial life. Following you in ways that mean that we will have to sacrifice. We thank you for doing these things for us. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that we might follow you in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.